Hi, and welcome back to OA On Air via social distancing. I'm Kyan Isaacson. This week, we're back with 321 Go. Then Jeremy Crockford and Suzanne Morris speak with Conservation Law Foundation's Deanna Moran and Amber Christofferson of the Mystic River Watershed Association about the revitalization of the Malden River and overcoming barriers to access to it. And last up, Two Minutes with Tom. Hello and welcome to another edition of 321 Go on OA On Air. It's our special holiday 2021 edition. To be exact, it's our deeper look into the world of public affairs, culture, business, and the economy. And I'm joined by Diane Isaacson, the official voice of OA On Air. Hey, Diane. Hi, how are you? Great to talk to you. Um, great to be here, as well as with our producer, Valentina. Um, hey, Cayenne, a lot of stuff going on. Certainly, uh, we're excited about the holidays uh, and excited about uh, the remaining remaining holiday season as we're here in the middle weeks of December. But first, let's talk about media, particularly an interesting case involving uh, both the New York Times and um, the uh, State Supreme Court of New York and Project Veritas, another uh, media outlet. And the Times has been covering a um, uh, Project Veritas um, uh, report, and there has been a, no no other way to say it, a rather chilling court ruling that is essentially halting the Times from continuing its own reporting. Yeah, I mean, uh, so Westchester County, New York, a state trial judge has restrained the Times from reporting on a matter of public interest uh, related to Project Veritas. And, you know, it's the the Times had, of course, an opinion piece on this recently and open up, interestingly, talking about, if everyone remembers, the Pentagon Papers, yep. which was another really big issue that Times is at the center of as well, um, on reporting about the Nixon administration. And they tried to sue the Times to, and the Washington Post from publishing stories. And you know, there's been movies made about it and all of these things. And at the end of the day, ultimately, in many cases, the court says freedom of speech is freedom of speech. Um, and what I thought was really interesting in reading this opinion piece from the Times this week is a line that says the First Amendment does not tolerate the idea that speech can be censored in advance, even if it might be punished after the fact. And I think that's a really important distinction for people to remember that freedom of speech does not preclude that there may be ramifications, punishments, lawsuits, all sorts of things, but that they get to say it in the first yeah. place. And then we deal with the fallout. That's a great, uh, and, that, that's a great point. Very well explained, too, because this is kind of a complex case. So not, not, you're absolutely right. Look, the Pentagon Papers case essentially established, um, not necessarily the guidepost, but really showed how strong... Uh, the principles of free speech in the First Amendment really are in the con- under the Constitution. That said, yes, there absolutely can be consequences of all kinds, including legal consequences. But uh, to your point, and this is not, a, and that was a case certainly of national security and all kinds of things. This is not that, but that that's not really the issue. The issue is that it, it is is precluding um, and, and and in advance halting the act of speech without and, and, and without even determining whether the speech 
somehow is actionable uh, by um, uh, you know by Project Veritas and its attorneys who claim that these memos that the Times have written on are attorney-client privilege. Perhaps they are, but the uh, the effect of the ruling we'll never know. And and, and I think that's the point of a, a piece that we've been looking at in the Washington Post. Uh, it really calls. Uh, for a close look at this case in, in which it says that this becomes, you know, like a, an advanced censor tool uh, before anyone even has the opportunity to deliver the speech itself. Yeah. And, you know, after coming out of the previous presidential administration where we had a president and, you know, many members of his team often trying to silence reporters shut down stories, not let the truth come to light, uh, you know, use executive privilege wherever possible. Uh, it, these are important issues. And while it may seem, you know, kind of wonky and, and a little nerdy even to some, uh, you know, the ability for our newspapers to publish and, and make known news and information freely is incredibly vital to democracy. Um, and this is, but, you know, you just kind of have to hope that we end up where we most often end up, which is letting, letting the, the speech take place and, you know, the fallout can, can still happen. But, um, after the past few years, I don't think it's ever been more apparent how important freedom of speech is to our democracy, to our society, um, and how we sort of function and, and learn what's happening and sometimes it's it's not pretty, but that's okay. Um, so, I, you know, it's funny that in 2021, this is still an issue that we are talking about and in debating at this level. Uh, I, I mean, I think it always will be. I think th there will always be attacks on free speech. I think there will always be ebbs and flows about how, what, what Americans think about the media and how speech is delivered and all kinds of things. But... Um, this is certainly an interesting case, and um, I just I want to be that guy just for a second and just remind people that uh, the tremendous respect I have for former President Obama and the Obama administration. They also that administration also uh, in, in 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 a number of cases were not exactly friends of openness and, and transparency with uh, <laughs> media and information. Nonetheless. Yeah. Um, yeah. Let's assume that all in, in every White House, uh, there's a certain level of, uh, of, of of translucency, or at least attempted, with regards to uh, the media. But you're absolutely right to make the reference yeah. to uh, the Trump administration. You are no, and and, and that's correct, right? It, it, for any administration, for you know, for any individual, right? <laughs> we all have things we'd probably prefer. Yeah. Um, you know, that, that didn't necessarily come to light. And there are some things, national security, um, you know, protection of troops and safety and, and things like that. Absolutely. Uh, that should be protected because that's, you know, when people's safety is, is on the line. But um, yeah, everyone has been guilty of of that from, from time to time. Indeed. All right, Kyan, fascinating stuff. We'll be keeping an eye on that. Um, staying sort of within the... Um, media sphere or, or related 
and it's I think it's very timely for us and very relevant because OA on air is uh, 140 some odd episodes into our uh, into our podcast as well as all the uh, podcasts and audio content we create for partners and clients and organizations we work with. And sure enough, the State of Podcasting 2021 report is out from Muckrack, which is a media database and information uh, service uh, of which firms like ours uh, use regularly almost every day. Uh, and they have analyzed and taken a very close look at the rapidly growing universe of podcasts in America. And um, a lot of fascinating findings that you can refer to and go through if you go to the report itself at muckrack.com. But for people um, interested, like our listeners in public affairs and PR and media, um, it, it's it's fair to say that the universe of podcasts and, and programming that's delivered in many cases uh, by, by individuals who've developed a concept is become more and more, not just more and more popular, but more and more valuable for for people like us, for people like us who in in the public affairs and PR and media relations field that that want to introduce their um, uh, a message, a client, a, a, an interview, or whatever it may be to an audience. The audience that is represented by podcasters is has become massive, and it is and it essentially. The big takeaway from this study is right there with TV, radio, digital media, newspapers, and so forth, you know, bloggers, for instance, we've had this conversation, you know, about the universal blogging. Well, sure enough, podcast audio content, uh, absolutely a major, major player uh, in terms of reaching an audience and therefore being valuable uh, if you've got a message. Yeah, I mean, the, the report essentially says that listenership is up um, and at least in the U.S. is predicted to increase by more than 10% uh, year over year to 117.8 million, which is a lot of people, um, which really speaks to the validity and the importance of the role podcasts are playing today. And it's it's news. It's not always just news. Um, you know, sometimes it's conversation, it's banter, it's comedy, it's satire. Uh, you know, if there's a podcast for everyone, anyone who says like, oh, I don't know, I'm not into podcasts, like you just haven't found the podcast for you. Um, I'm, you know, to pat ourselves on the back, really proud of the role and sort of how we took on podcasting really early on a couple of years ago and said, this is going to be an area that's going to grow. This is an opportunity. We've got smart, you know, talented people that can talk about things. We've got really great clients. We've got really great relationships and, you know, in the city, in the Commonwealth, in the country. To, and we've had, you know, really great conversations. We've broken, we, we broke news on the podcast a couple of times with some of our guests. Um, and it was something that, you know, kudos to us, right? That we had the foresight to say, this is, this is a thing and this is somewhere where we need to be active and, and moving. And it's only continued to grow, I think, for us, of course, as an organization, but within the grand scheme of podcasting overall. Yeah. No, I think you're right. It makes me, as much as we've been involved in creating content, it really makes me want to redouble sort of my thinking around organizations we work with 
and, and do a better job, do more, more, uh, you know, of finding um, um, interview opportunities, right? I guess I'm talking a little sharp right now, but interview opportunities and, and podcasts that it would make sense for a client that specializes in a certain type of uh, online platform for a prenuptial agreement as one example, or another client that is uh, involved in the, uh, you know, um, a large retailer of alcoholic beverages or another client that's a large uh, labor organization, you know, representing truck drivers and others or whatever it may be, uh, you know, finding and 80% of podcasts are essentially produced by one person. If you're trying to get directly to a decision maker with someone who's interesting to be a guest, you can't ask for better than that, right? You go, you, you, you go right to the top because there's only the top. There's one person. Go right to the source. Right to the so I think it's a you know I think this report is very very fascinating and refreshing and important. If you're in the universe, uh, and it's not just public relations firms; it's essentially any organization and the function it has to communicate. This is an important channel, and um, and uh, you know it's a uh, Really interesting stuff, and um, I'm looking forward to sort of tracking this uh, over time. Yeah, onward and upward. Right. Excellent, great work, great work, Cayenne, as one of our podcast pioneers here at uh, Away on Air. Now, it is the holiday season; it is the Christmas period. We uh, we celebrated. Uh, we had a couple of different Thanksgiving deals going on in my in my extended family on a couple of different days, believe it or not. We celebrate Hanukkah here in our home, and we we certainly celebrate Christmas. Um, you know, I've been listening to a lot of Christmas music. I've been noodling around on my guitar a little. I did a little Salvation Army <laughs> bell ringing, played some Silent Night slide guitar nice. outside by the Salvation Army bell in Cushing Square, Belmont. But I realized there's, there's kind of only a couple of Christmas songs that I even really like a lot. And most of them, I'm like, okay. What's your sort of view on Christmas music? There's a couple of songs I think are awesome. And then everything else just sounds like I'm in an elevator. I love Christmas music. I get very excited when it's time to play Christmas music. My husband remarked the other day, like, is why is Christmas music the only thing that we can listen to right now? And while that's not true because it's not always on, but it's, it's, this is the only time of year. I do not listen to Christmas music after Christmas. So no. you get your fill. Yeah, you For me, it's right around Thanksgiving until Christmas. Yeah. Um, I tend to like the classics. Um, and I, I also tend to like more of the, like the slow ballads speak more to me, like kind of the, they're almost melancholy sometimes. Um, I don't know what that says about me, but I love Christmas. I think it's a magical time. And music is part of it. And especially now my, my son is starting to have his favorites and it gets him excited. And I just, I love that there are songs that he's singing and, and understand and know the words to that have been around for decades and decades and decades. Um, and I think that speaks to how well the original, like the OG Christmas songs were. Um, a lot of the more recent pop songs that come out I could do without some of them are fun but for the most part I like the classics yeah no that's good I, I like that I mean I, I um as a child and a kid I have memories of you know 
December 1st, boom. Out comes the Andy Williams Christmas album, the Williams Brothers. And, <laughs> and, and you know what? Like it's a hit, you know. You got to have the you got to have the hit as the, the right off the bat, boom. It's that first song, you know, it's the most wonderful time of the year. That song gets yep. me so fired up for Christmas, it's out of control. And it, and it's it's the number one song <laughs> on our record. It, it just it's you know, it's like um you know, Something about that song, I, I, I love it. The other one for me that really I think is just perfect is it. Um, it's called Sleigh Ride. That, a lot, a lot of versions. The Ronettes have a famous version. It's that you know, just hear those sleigh bells jingling, ring, ring, ringling. That kind of one. That song. Um, yep. I'm not gonna sing because I can't sing. But in any case, that's my other one. Those two songs I could listen to over and over again. I could kind of take or leave the rest of the stuff. Just you know. By the way, I absolutely loathe. The Bruce Springsteen uh, version of uh, the Chris, that Christmas song that people love to get so excited about. I'm not really a Bruce Springsteen fan, anyways, but people love Merry that, that song, and it drives me nuts. Santa Claus um, is coming to town. I don't love that. I if I never hear the song "Blue Christmas" again, yeah. it will be too soon. I don't like any version yeah. of it. Um, like Christmas is here, war is over. John Lennon, I hate that song. Um, there's a couple that, like, if they come on, I shut, I shut them. There's off. kind of, there's yeah. really only one rock music Christmas song that I like, and it, just because it's kind of a fun song, and it's the by the Kinks, that Father Christmas song. You know, um, that's a really cool tune. It's, it's just, and but other than that, yeah, I'm, I'm not big on the kind of rock music, rock artist Christmas album thing. Just enough. Yeah, you know, I would agree. Yeah. Few, few get it right. Some do. Few get it right. For me, in recent years, Michael Bublé has a hundred percent taken over as like the go-to Christmas caroon. Like you know, just it's classic. His voice is classic, but it's got a fresh spin. So that's usually what's playing, or just some random holiday mix. But then I skip through a lot of the songs. So you know, I'm picky. I like Christmas music, but I'm picky about yeah, it. Yeah, that's good. It's good to be. Good to be picky. All right, Cayenne, thanks a lot. That's going to do it for another edition of 321 Go on OA on Air. We are recorded at various locations around the Commonwealth and the United States. Our producer is Valentina. Thanks for listening. Goodbye till next time. I'm Cosmo Macero. Suzanne Morris with Seven Letter, and I am here today with my colleague, Jeremy Crockford. Hi, Suzanne. Hi there. And with Amber Christofferson of the Mystic River Watershed Association and Deanna Moran of Conservation Law Foundation. We are here today to talk about the revitalization of the Malden River, public access, and more. Welcome to you both. Hi, thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks. Um, so, Amber, let's start with you. Can you tell us a little bit about the history of the Malden River and the recent efforts that are turning the riverbanks into parks and walkways? Sure. Yeah. So the Malden River flows through the cities of Medford, Malden and Everett um, into the Mystic River, which empties into Boston Harbor. So just a few miles from downtown Boston. Um, it's going through a once in a generation transformation right now. 
Uh, prior to the 1800s, it was a free-flowing tidal river. Uh, it was then dammed, straightened, and channelized to support heavy industrial uses for the next about 150 years. Um, so during all of that time, the river has been walled off to the public because commercial and industrial users found this land convenient and cheap. However, in the last decade, times have changed. Uh, River's Ed in Medford was developed uh, with uh, mixed-use development that includes a beautiful seven-acre park space. There are several new parks and riverfront paths that have opened in just the past two years. And there's many more open space uh, mobility and restoration projects in the works. Uh, once complete, the Malden River will become an open space amenity of both local and regional importance. Uh, hi, this is this is Jeremy. How are you, Amber? Um, a lot of us, there's been a lot of media coverage about the renaissance of the Malden River. It mm -hmm. is starting to look beautiful in parts where some private developers and, and the friends of the river have all worked to make open space and trails and it's getting people out more, which we know is, is really huge during the pandemic. But at the same time, there's been a lot of media coverage, including two Globe editorials, calling on National Grid to open up a parcel it has there, which is fenced off and is preventing the, uh, preventing the park from being one long continu continuous walk or bikeway. Can... Can you or Deanna talk a little bit about why National Grid has not joined other companies there in opening up the riverfront? Sure. Yeah. So um, the the Malden River is 3.5 miles of shoreline. And for a little bit of context, National Grid is along 0.5 miles of the river. So it's a really significant uh, piece of what we hope will be a continuous contiguous walking and biking open space. Um, and your question was why they haven't been coming to the table? Yeah. Why is that parcel still closed off to the public? Well, this is where I was hoping Deanna might help me a little bit, but um, I don't know, Deanna, if we want to talk about chapter 91 at all. Sure. Yeah. So national, this um, site that we're talking about, this national grid site that currently does not have any public access um, is actually part of the state's chapter 91 licensing program. Um, and that program requires that the public have access um, to what we call tidelands, which is essentially the area between the um, high and the low tide mark um, for fishing, fouling, and navigation. Um, in some places, that public access requirement is heightened. Um, so a lot of Boston, for instance, is what we consider Commonwealth Tidelands. So they have even more requirements than just kind of the bare minimum access. Um, unfortunately, in a lot of our historically marginalized communities that um, have you know, really had for decades these very industrialized waterfronts, like in Everett and Malden and Medford, um, a lot of those Tidelands are considered private Tidelands. So um, there, there is, still the obligation to provide public access, um, but sometimes uh, it goes kind of unenforced um, because the obligations are not as heightened as in places like Boston. So in National Grid's case, um, you know, they have had this obligation to provide public access, you know, since they've, they've occupied the site, which has been decades, um, and it, it really just hasn't been uh, adequately and enforced. And I think for a number of years, they cited safety concerns um, and that they wouldn't be able to provide public access on the site because um, of the industrial nature of their operation and, and concerns about security, um, both for National Grid and for the public. 
Um, and it was it was just recently in the last uh, several years that DEP, through kind of one of these licensing proceedings, um, conditioned their approval of National Grid's presence on this site um, on a new public access requirement. They said you have to build this pathway along um, the river on your site and, and provide this kind of longstanding access that you were supposed to have been providing. Um, and in really in in doing that, said to National Grid, you know, we're not really buying this argument that this is a public safety concern. And to go back to what um, Amber said earlier, there are a number of other sites um, in these three communities along the Malden who have been able to provide this. And some of those sites are also industrial sites. So I think that it um, it demonstrates this pattern that you know we're starting to see um, these types of operations, operations like National Grid, um, can provide public access, and those things can kind of live in, live in harmony on some of these formerly or, or presently industrialized sites. Um, and so they're really kind of fighting back against that and saying that um, they shouldn't be required to provide access here. That DEPs um, kind of you know acting outside of their authority and requiring this, and I just don't think that that's true. At this point, uh, the three mayors and the legislators for the cities of Melrose, Everett, and Malden have all come out repeatedly and said that National Grid needs to turn this over and allow people to use it. And at, at the same time, DEP has told them to do that. Why won't they do this? And, and what is the recourse for the communities to get National Grid to make this open space? Yeah, I can take a, a first stab at that. Um, you know, I think in terms of why they don't want to do it, um, I, I'm speculating, but I think ultimately it comes down to a cost issue for them um, and potentially a, a precedent issue that they, um, if they provide uh, public access at this site, they might have to do it elsewhere. I think, um, you know, that that doesn't really appropriately account for this context, which is they are... Um, operating on land that essentially has kind of an inherent state easement on it. You know, they knew when they purchased the property, it was, it was under Chapter 91 jurisdiction, that they would have these obligations under state law. Um, and that's, you know, there's really no excuse for them to now say, oh, well, it would be too costly for us to provide public access at this site, um, or, you know, it would threaten our operation because of security. Um, they knew going in that, you know, that was kind of um, a requirement for this location. And so I think that that argument kind of falls flat. I think that the other issue is, um, you know, co cost really shouldn't be a consideration at all here because at the end of the day, um, you know, they have this obligation based on the location of their site and, and that's, you know, all there is to it. Um, but to get into the cost issue just for a minute, you know, they're, they have argued that it would be um, extremely expensive for them to build this pathway along their site. And um, Amber can, can speak more to this, but um, Mr. Cooper Watershed Association and others have looked pretty closely at this and um, have found that one of the drivers of the cost of providing this pathway or building this pathway um, has to do with uh, potential contamination at the National Grid site and things that they would need to do to cap the site um, to kind of allow for a path to be built. And it's a little, it, you know, that to me is a little bit ironic that they're arguing that, you know, it would be so expensive to provide public access at this site um, when that's really kind of one of the cost drivers because that, you know, they brought that on themselves. 
um, it's, it's their fault. And, and, you know, pre previous owners faults that that site is contaminated and that shouldn't be, um, something that gets put back on, uh, you know, public users or on the state, it's nobody's fault, but their own. Um, so, you know, I think that that's one of the reasons that they're pushing back in terms of recourse for what will happen next. You know, I think where we're at right now is MassDEP has issued a written determination that National Grid has to provide this pathway as an obligation um, of its Chapter 91 require license. Um, and National Grid has appealed that decision, essentially. And the process for appealing MassDEP's decision in a matter like this is that it first kind of goes through an administrative proceeding. So it goes through um, the Office of Administrative Disputes within uh, the Massachusetts Department of Environmental Protection. Um, and we are involved in that proceeding. Um, CLF and Mystic River Watershed Association are involved in that proceeding, as are the cities of Malden, Medford, and Everett, and MassDEP themselves, um, basically fighting back uh, against that appeal and saying that, you know, this is within MassDEP's authority to require this. Um, once that, you know, works its way through the administrative proceeding, um, it could potentially be appealed further to Superior Court. So, you know, right now we're waiting to see um, what the administrative proceeding will yield um, and whether or not the, the hearing officer will um, fine for MassDEP or not. And then we will have to wait and see, um, you know, whether or not that decision will be appealed. I, I think, you know, it seems like National Grid uh, at this point um, is just looking to drag this proceeding out as long as they possibly can um, because they don't want to do this. And um, I think that there is a, uh, you know, strong possibility that um, MassDEP will be successful in enforcing this obligation. Um, and I think National Grid might know that. Um, and so, you know, I think at the end of the day, um, this could be a really long dragged out legal proceeding or National Grid could do the right thing and they could step up and just provide this public access. So let's just take um, a little step back. Tell us a little bit about who is using the park the parks along the Malton River at this point. And, you know, second part of that question is why is this parcel so important to the community? Yeah, so I'm happy to answer that. Um, two of the largest, uh, the cities that really are in need of a space like this are those in Malden and Everett. Many of those represent environmental justice populations. Just for a sense of comparison, um, when you're looking at open space as measured by acres per 1,000 resident, the city of Boston is hovering a little over 10. Uh, Malden is 6.9 and Everett 7.5. So to begin with, there's a lack of access to open space. And then on top of that, there's a lack of access to the waterfront. So these communities deserve access to this, this waterway near them and restoring access to the river and creating a contiguous park network will reverse some of this, these equity issues that we're seeing. So that that's one thing that we really are focused on is ensuring that people that live near this natural resource have access to it. The public has access to it. So that's a really important um, piece of this puzzle. And again, given just the sheer uh, size of National Grid's footprint on the river, they have the opportunity to contribute to this larger vision of a greenway network that's close to being complete, minus this shoreline. So it's um, something we care deeply about. And um, we've developed a really strong coalition of local community-based groups, residents, elected officials, 
Conservation Law Foundation, all of us working towards the same goal of let's open up waterfront on this site. Amber, have you have you impressed at all on National Grid the idea that this is in fact an environmental justice issue? Yeah, we we have, and you know, in fact, I think what made a really big impression on DEP was the public hearing held in fall of 2016. So that was now five years ago, and residents came and spoke out, and I think I think they heard um, the kind of equity issues that are inherent in this area and um you know i i'm not sure what else would be convincing to them you know but um it is it's something that is such a huge is, is such a huge part of this you know when you look at wealthier communities they often have better open space amenities have access to the waterfront and we are ensure we want to be sure that the community has it and back to the idea of cost like what does this path cost is minuscule when you compare the cost to these communities of having to live near this national grid site uh, to not be able to get out and exercise and experience the physical health and psychological well-being impacts of open spaces and just being by the waterfront so you know it depends <laughs> you you can look at what the cost is in a number of different ways and uh it's really not a huge cost to National Grid, considering the contamination over the years and the walling off of the river for many, many years. So is there anything we missed? Well, I think what's important to emphasize is the, uh, the time-sensitive opportunity right now. Uh, of the three and a half miles of shoreline, 75% of it is existing access and or in progress, meaning it's in design or construction. So of the less than one mile remaining, 0.5 miles of that is the National Grid site. So having this turn to contiguous public access is just hugely important. Uh, just downstream of the National Grid parcel, a former GE site was turned into 12 acres of open space with a river walk, picnic areas, and playing fields. Just upstream, another piece of the Greenway network was completed by combined properties. And all of this has happened since the initial public hearing held back in fall of 2019. So it's something that if we can act on today, we'll be well on our way towards a connected, vibrant greenway network on the Malden River. Uh, also directly across from the river from National Grid is a project called Malden River Works. Um, we are bringing together a coalition of community leaders of color, environmental advocates, and government stakeholders to create a new climate resilient waterfront park on the Malden River. And this is the only publicly owned uh, parcel in Malden on the river. And this two acre park redevelopment will feature a new boathouse, floating docks, a flexible lawn space for events, and native plants to improve ecology and mitigate heat impacts from increasing temperatures. So. You know, as we're working on designing that site, which is about at 25% design right now, we go out on site and we look right at the National Grid parcel and keep thinking, wow, this should be a piece of this whole park system. So I think it's just important to recognize that it's such a great time-sensitive opportunity that we hope um, can come to fruition soon. Well, Amber Christofferson, Deanna Moran, thank you for joining us on OA on Air today. Thank you. Yeah, thank you guys so much. Have a good day.
minutes with Diane. Two minutes with Tom. It's been a while. It has been a while. It's great to be back with you. How are you doing? I'm good. How are you? I'm happy holidays. Fun. Yeah, happy holidays. Merry Christmas and enjoy this last week. A week away from Christmas Eve. I know. I I'm know. excited. Yep. And the end of yet another tough year with the COVID virus. Yes. As we go into 2022, which will mark the third year that the United States the beginning of the third year. That's right. And we have a new variant of the virus. Uh, and it's spreading 70 times quicker. It's more transmissible than any of the other variants that we've seen, including Delta. Uh, it, it appears to be a little less harmless. In That's that good not, news. Yeah, it's 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 fewer <laughs> hospitalizations and fewer people passing from it, but people are sick. There's no question about it. So, yeah. so, so you know, taking the protocols, making sure that you've had your 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 double dose of vaccine and your booster shot, are really very important. And, taking uh, advantage too of those at-home tests and rapid testing where it's available. Um, you know, I think we've seen the impact that utilizing the tools that we have is the best way out of this. And rapid testing is, is just one of those tools. I agree with it. And um, wearing a mask, even though some pundits don't think that it's effective, you know, as you plow into crowds, whether it's a family gathering or whether it's store for shopping at last minute Christmas shopping, you know, a mask is not a bad thing to at least begin to go into and, 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 and where. Um, mm -hmm. Anyway. Well, California, we have a statewide mask mandate back in place. It's effective Wednesday the 15th for minimum one month. So we're indoors regardless of vaccine status. Right. And I think, you know, at the beginning of this, if we were to look back almost two years ago now, California was one of the first states to shut down. Um, everyone thought that it was you know, a little out of control and then everyone kind of got there. So my guess is, you know, probably not all states for political reasons, but that a lot of states are going to be headed back towards that if this variant continues to behave the way people believe it's going yeah, to. Yeah, yeah. And it's, it's striking the coasts harder than it is the interior of the country. Um, New England and California are states where, where the, the virus and this variant are beginning to spike, and people are deeply concerned about it. So good for the leadership out there, and I hope it works. It calms it all down. So if you're if you're President Joe Biden, how frustrated are you right now? I think I think very frustrated. Um, you know, I, 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 this is a uh, just an observation. Joe Biden, as proud as we are of the leadership which he's provided, whether it's on the foreign affairs front with, you know, with global environmental uh, pursuits that are working, um, or whether it's, um, you know, on the domestic front, making sure there are monies for for unemployed, for homeless, uh, for children. You know, I'm, I'm proud of him. But I think we have to be careful as Democrats. Joe Biden was not elected to be the next FDR. You know, he was really elected to be the next, the next Jerry Ford, who followed Richard Nixon, who came in to calm the waters after after Nixon's administration. And Joe Biden, to a very large extent, was elected to do exactly the same thing following the tumult of the Donald Trump era. Um, and so, you know, I, I wish this 
bring back better bill would come get get voted on and we then we can get back to work and do you know what what, what presidents on a day-to-day basis are, are, are supposed to be doing um and and you know we just need the things to settle down i think he's done a great job I, if, if there's a criticism it's that they don't talk about they don't talk enough about their accomplishments and, and that's something that's really it's really been missing i think because people don't know the effect of his policies and what it's done for the good of, of this country instead they get broiled down on spending because the republican lines are about spending and about immigration and, and it's wrong because there's more balance there and, and, and more good things have come from this administration and this Congress than people know about. Yeah. Anyway, anyway, let me not get bogged down. I, I think in the next couple of years, this president is going to do wonderful things. Here's to that. Well, before we go, it is almost Christmas. And before this, I had asked if you would share one of my favorite of your Christmas stories. Yeah, are you talking about my father and I going out for the Salvation Army and ringing the bell? Yes, because I love the visual. <laughs> I like to picture you as a, I, I love that idea. You, little, ringing the bell with your dad, downtown crossing. Was it, it was, in it, front it of was, Feline's? It was, it was the old Feline's. Um, <laughs> it's the basement door of Feline's basement. And uh, the crowd, I mean, and my dad was a well-known figure. Uh, in those days, he'd been the speaker of the Massachusetts House of Representatives um, back in the late 40s and early 50s. And he was asked every year to hold the bucket and ring the bell for the Salvation Army. And he had a, a terrific ho-ho-ho. But he used to let me ring the bell. And, you know, we'd be, we'd be, we'd be smothered in, in warm clothes. Um, you could barely see my face through, you know, through what my wraps that the, or the you know the things my mother put around me uh, to put me out in the cold, but my and my father and I loved it, and it was just a great coming together. And people were cheerful and, and giving and thoughtful and generous, and um, it just made for a wonderful a wonderful time of the year, just to kind of buoy up the spirits of everybody passing by. It was terrific. Love that. Well, Merry Christmas and Happy Holidays, Tom. And uh, Merry Christmas to you and Happy Holidays to everybody and to and, everyone. Uh, yes. And let's think that 2022 is going to be yet a better year. That's it for this week's episode of OA On Air via social distancing. Thanks for tuning in. Talk to you next week.